I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me to our study of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. I think it would be appropriate for us to once again begin our time with a word of prayer, asking that God would attend to our study. Heavenly Father, we do once again come before You, dependent upon You for all things. And Lord, we are certainly and most acutely dependent upon You for our minds and our hearts to be illumined by Your truth, for Your Holy Spirit to work in us and with us as we study Your Word. Lord, may the implications of what Your Word means by what it says be pressed upon us that we would embrace them, acknowledge them, and begin to walk in them. Not so that we might think in any way that we could earn Your favor by means of salvation, but that You would simply be glorified by us and through us, because that is what You deserve. And that is the chief end of man, to glorify You forever. And so we thank You for this time. Use it to bless Your name and to encourage and strengthen our own faith. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I trust that you have been encouraged by our study of 2 Peter as we have walked with the Apostle Peter, really, as he is being used by the Holy Spirit to both exhort and to encourage us as true Christians concerning, really, the two sides of the Christian life. And of course, I'm referring to God's side and our side when it comes to faith and living by that faith. There is a side in which God accomplishes, and there is a side in which God requires of us. We saw in verses 1 and 4 of chapter 1, God's side. We saw what God has done for us, what He has accomplished on our behalf through faith in Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Peter starts out the way he does. He is writing to Christians, those who have received a faith, those who have believed upon Jesus Christ because of God's gift to them, the gift of faith. And by the righteousness of our God, And by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with God. And then, of course, we studied in verses 5 through 7, our side of the equation. Our side of this reality of salvation in which we have been given. That in light of what God has done for us, we saw in verses 1 and 4, then this is how we are to be living out how Our faith is to look in practice. This is how faith is to be lived. In other words, because God has saved us, because we are partakers of the divine nature, as it tells us here in the verse verse 4, because we have by that divine nature and because of the grace and mercy of God escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, then we are exhorted on our side to give everything that we have to walk by that faith. 
Because of what God has accomplished, because God has accomplished His side, we are exhorted and commanded and equipped by God to do our side, which is walk by that faith, to diligently apply with maximum effort those seven qualities that we went over in verses 5 through 7. Give every effort to apply all diligence in your faith, supplying moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And so by the time you come to verses 8 through 11, the text that we're going to spend our time in this morning, it should be no surprise that we find Peter sharing with us the results or the outflow, if you will, of living or not living as we are commanded to do in the previous verses. These are the results. This is the outflow. This is what is the motivators, if you will, of what we do. Now, I, I need to say as we begin our time this morning that it is very sad. It is sad that many within the Christian community... Many who claim to have a relationship with God by means of Jesus Christ would like to live by the simple understanding that once I am saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and since my efforts cannot do anything for me to save me, then there really is no need for me to put effort into my Christian living. In other words, that I'm saved by God, I understand that God's the one who saves, and I understand that I cannot save myself, and because of that, there's no reason for me to actually do anything to live my Christian life. They say that that would simply equate to a work of righteousness. To do anything, to put any effort into living out your Christian life would be equated to doing some kind of work of righteousness. And since any of my works are worthless to save, then once saved, I just live the best I can. I don't put any effort into it at all. I don't really try at all. I simply let go and let God. I simply hand it all over to God, let go, let God, because once saved, always saved. In other words, once you're in, you're in. Don't think of it anymore, and definitely don't work at growing in your faith. And while that philosophy has truth sprinkled in it, while that idea is like the old adage bumper sticker that I've mentioned before, God said it, I believe it, that's it. While that sounds good fully and in light of how we believe, the reality of whether you believe it or not makes no sense. God said it, that's it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It has no effect on whether God said it. And so the philosophy that once I'm saved, I don't have to do anything is kind of like that. It may be popular among many professing Christians today to think that way, but we know from the text that it cannot be biblically true and accurate to what a Christian is to be or how they are to live. Why? Because the central exhortation of the Bible as a whole, and particularly the central exhortation of Second Peter, is this, 
Since God has done all of this for you, then give it all you've got by exercising your faith to the fullest extent in moral excellence, by exercising all you got, ensuring that your moral excellence is an informed moral excellence. It is informed by knowledge or the biblical implicational thinking that the scriptures help us with. And ensure that your biblical and implicational thinking remains self-controlled and that your self-control continues, that it perseveres even in those times when your flesh is tempting you to not continue in self-control. And in your perseverance, know that you don't do it for yourself. You do it for the glory of God. You remain, you continue because it's not about you. It's about God's glory. And then in your continued godliness, because you have a right relationship that you practice before God, then you walk in brotherly kindness and in love as defined by the Scriptures. In other words, true faith does save. Once saved, always save when you're truly saved, but true faith always produces action. There is no such thing as an inactive Christian or a person who is saved who isn't walking by faith. That is to say, there is no salvation without works. There is no salvation without works. There is no salvation in which the life doesn't produce faithful living. That's the exhortation of this passage. Then... He adds the inevitable results. In other words, in verses 8 through 11, we are given the reasons, the reasons that help motivate us to put into practice this diligent walk of faith. We already know what God's done for us. We already know we're commanded to do that. And yet we find oftentimes these other things chirping in our ears, these other false ideas, these other diluted down, even called Christian ideas about what a Christian is to be. And yet here the Apostle Peter gives us the results or the motivations, if you will, for putting into practice these diligence in our faith. And Peter gives us four reasons Four reasons or four inevitable results that come from walking in faith or this faith walk. And when we look at these, beginning in verse 8, you'll quickly notice that three are positive and one is negative. I want to just read them for us and then we'll begin to walk through them. Notice beginning in verse 8. For if these qualities, we know what qualities he's talking about. He's talking about the qualities of verses 5 through 7. Those seven Diligent practices in the walk of faith. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, I want us to understand something as we begin. 
when the Bible speaks about how we are to live as Christians, this is something we Christians need to just have as a principle in our mind. When the Bible speaks about how we are to live as Christians, it does so, it speaks so by appealing to our claims and our understanding. When the Bible declares to us to live out our Christian lives, to live as a Christian, it does so by appealing to our claim and our understanding. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean that the Bible doesn't simply tell us to do certain things or not do certain things in a vacuum. It doesn't just declare these grand things or these things not to do or the things to do in this isolated sense, in a vacuum, as if there's nothing driving it. When it comes to the commands of obedience in the Scripture, the Bible commands it by appealing to our profession of faith. It appeals to us in our claim. We claim to know Jesus Christ. We claim to love God. We claim that we are Christians by faith. And the Bible appeals to that claim when it commands obedience. It says to us that we are to be holy in our living. Why? Because we claim to believe upon Jesus Christ. We claim to know Him. In other words, we are commanded to obey in light of our faith, in light of believing. This is the appeal to our claim. It's the appeal to our understanding. You claim to believe upon Jesus Christ. If you claim to know God through faith in His Son, and if you are honest in your own heart, in your claim, and you mean what you say, then this is how you should be living. That's what the Bible says. We could say it a different way. If you claim to be this kind of person, then let's see it in your life. And let's see it in the outflow of your life. If you claim to be a righteous person, if you claim to be A, B, or C, then let's see it in the outflow of your life, right? If you claim to be a doctor, then let's see it in your practice. Here's how that thinking has made its way into the Christian cliche language of our day. There's a lot of Christian cliches out there. Here's how that would be said in our Christian cliche language. Practice what you what? Preach. Practice what you preach. I mean, the, the world says that to us all the time. Hey, Christian, practice what you preach. And it goes without saying, doesn't it? We don't expect someone who doesn't claim to believe in Christ to live like Christ. We don't go to the world and say, hey, here's how Jesus says we are to live, so we expect you to live that way. That's foolishness. They don't know Christ, so we don't expect that. We don't have, they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They can't live like Jesus Christ. But that's not who we are. We're Christians. 
or those who claim by faith to know Jesus Christ. We have a precious faith, Peter says, given to us by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We have a fundamental difference with the world. We have a divine power given to us by God that pertains to life and godliness. A divine power. We don't have the right to say, I can't. I can't do it. We don't have the right to say that. That is to diminish God and what God has given us. That is to redefine God to say he gave us something lacking. He didn't give us something. He left something out. No, God has given us everything we need by his divine power and through the divine power, everything we need for life and godliness. And we understand who it is who has given to us these great and precious promises. We understand that it's God. We understand that He is the eternal other. That He is outside of creation. He is the one who created it. We have escaped the correction, the corruption of the world by its lust through His righteousness, through His divine power. We have been given a new life. Therefore, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price, and so holy living is common sense for the Christian. It is not abnormal. It is not something extraordinary. It is simply common sense. And therefore, anyone who claims to know Christ and yet is not concerned at holy living, they aren't concerned at all at how they live. They just say, ah, it doesn't really matter. Then they are a self-contradiction. They're a self-contradiction. Their life is a self-contradiction. And so we have to sit here this morning as we look at this passage and we have to ask ourselves, whatever my reaction is as a professing Christian, as someone who claims to know Jesus Christ, whatever my reaction is to the exhortations given to us in verses 5 through 7, whatever my reaction is to those tells me where I stand in relationship with the one I follow or I claim to follow. If I recoil from that, I have to ask myself the question, do I really know the one who gave all this to me, as verses 1 through 4 says? This is really what Peter is talking about. This really is what settles you, what gives you that solidness on which you stand when trouble comes and when false teaching comes. So there are four reasons why we should strive to give it our all in living out our faith. Number one is this. First reason, the first motivator is because it produces usefulness and fruitfulness in your life. It produces usefulness and fruitfulness in your life, because it produces in you as a Christian an active and fruitful life. Notice verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. I think this is one of the greatest spoken desires of most people within Christendom. I want to be useful. I think true Christians say that. 
in their heart and their mind. I just want to be used by God. I desire to be useful. None of us who truly know Jesus Christ desire to never be used by God. None of us desire as a child of God to just sit back and never be used by God in the church or in the lives of His people. Oh, sure, we may not want the spotlight. We may not want the light shining bright on us and be up front in front of people or however that might go. We might like the background work of Christianity to which there is much. But we still desire to be used. We still desire to be useful in our Christianity. And this is what Peter is saying here. Saying if you exercise the very qualities that you have been empowered to exercise because of your faith in Jesus Christ, with the very effort with which you have been equipped by God to exercise them with all diligence, the product of that exercise, the product of your diligence, the product of your God-equipped, God-energized diligence in it will in fact produce usefulness and fruitfulness in your life. Some of us say, I want to be fruitful. I want to be diligent to be useful in my, in my life, but I don't know what to do. Well, here's what you need to do. You need to focus yourself on verses 5 through 7 and begin with all your effort to put these things into practice in your life. And God says, if they are in you and they are increasing, in other words, they're growing every day. This is sanctification. This is the road to, on sanctification. It's not a straight line up. It's a, it's a road that goes like this, but it's always heading up. They're increasing then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. I read an illustration this week concerning this very principle that I think the author is very helpful. He said this, quote, I wonder whether the main difference between the modern Christian and the Christian in the last few centuries was not just at this very point. They were so active and we are so idle. They lived to speak about spiritual things, to do spiritually driven activities, to live the Christian life. But somehow the idea has crept in that to be a Christian today means that you simply ascribe to certain views, that you occasionally participate in worship, that you sit and listen and you receive, but you do very little to nothing by way of Christian activity. We are simply idle people, unquote. I remember years ago when I was in California under the ministry of Dr. John MacArthur, he said one day to the people, I pour it out in buckets, the word of God, I pour the truth out in buckets to you and you fill up your thimble and then you spill it on the steps as you leave. The same thing. That's what that author is saying. Now we have to understand, lest we go away thinking, that Peter is advocating some kind of Christian busyness. That verse 8 some kind of indicates, by way of implication, a busyness in the Christian activity. That's not what he's saying. 
What Peter is exhorting here is that in our pursuit of applying diligence in those qualities, is that when we apply that diligence in our faith, that we strive in them to become like Christ. Not that we become busy, but that we become like Christ. In other words, that's the useful fruitfulness produced. It is, notice, Peter qualifies it with the last phrase in that verse. It is a usefulness and a fruitfulness in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you grow and you're useful in your Christ-likeness. You become more and more like Christ. In other words, in your energy-expending effort of walking by faith, of trusting Christ in every area and all of life, of walking according to what God's called you to walk, no matter what the consequences, you concentrate in them on being like Christ. I want to be like Christ. You be holy because He's holy. You're holy in practice like Christ is, because if you become like Christ, you will inevitably become a properly active Christian. You won't be active for the wrong reasons. You'll be active for the right reasons. You won't sit around idle. And when you are putting effort into Christian activity, you will grow and be used. You see, that's the difference between pure Christian busyness and true Christian living, as Peter is advocating. The true Christian strives to cultivate Christ-likeness while pure busyness cultivates activity, it's labeled Christian, but it may not be like Christ at all. We see a lot of that. In other words, we are like Christ. And when we are like Christ, then our Christian activity will be directed by the Holy Spirit And it will not be according to our own fleshly desires enacted by some kind of external pressure upon us to just be busy. It'll be fruitful. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a helpful comment on this. I think it'll help us just to hear it. He says this, quote, Activity, that of mere mechanical activism, is not very fruitful. Just look at it in regards to the church today. And of course, he wrote that decades ago. Just look at it in regards to the church today of his time, let alone our time. He said, look at the busyness and the organized activity within evangelicalism. What is it producing? What's it leading to? Though we have multiplied our organizations and institutions, the number of church members is dwindling. The number of people attending places of worship becomes less and less, and the world is not better. The busyness is unfruitful. But if we indulge in true Christian activity, it will become fruitful. And it will be fruitful in this way. If we concentrate on developing the Christian character, we become attractive to others. You know what he's saying? If we become Christ-like, others are attracted to that. 
He says, men and women, when they look at us, will see good people and holy people, and they will ask, what is it that these people have? Why are they so charming and attractive? What is this peace and composure they possess? What is this atmosphere of holiness and goodness that we sense in them? What is it that they have which we lack? A Christian who is like Christ, who is striving to develop the character of Christ in their life, inevitably becomes fruitful. It's exactly what Peter is saying. We must be seeing these qualities increase in us because it's through them that we are made useful and fruitful. That's how God designed it. You will not be fruitful in your Christianity. You will not be useful in your Christianity without pursuing with all diligence these qualities. Secondly, secondly, we need to be diligent to pursue growth in these characteristics because to not do that shows how ignorant we are of what it means to fundamentally be a Christian. To not pursue them shows just how ignorant we are, how biblically illiterate in one sense we are to what it means to be a Christian or even not a Christian at all. It may show us to not be a Christian at all. Here's how Peter states it. Notice verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So here's what Peter is saying. A professing Christian who is not concerned with growing in Christ-likeness, a professing Christian who isn't concerned with increasing in Christ-likeness in their life, who is not putting effort into walking by faith in these qualities, is a person who, according to God, this is God's word, this is God's authority, according to God, is ig- they are ignorant of what, is fundamental, what it fundamentally means to be a Christian. Notice how he states it. He says, first, he is blind or short-sighted. By the way, the word or is not in the original text. It's placed there simply for reading in many of our texts. And I don't believe that Peter is talking about two qualities. Blind or short-sighted. These aren't, he's not listing two effects here. He's rather describing the depth of blinding. The depth of blinding. In other words, it's like being nearsighted. He's, we could even say it this way, I believe, for he who lacks these is blindly short-sighted. So the idea of this is that the kind of person is like a person who sees things only up close. He can only see things up close. His distant vision is blind. It's as if he was blind. In other words, he's someone who constantly is concerned with only what is for the here and now. He's only concerned with now time, no far perspective, no thought of what's to come, no thought of the implications that follow a certain thought or a certain action. It's all about right now, right today, this moment, this time. 
In other words, this life is it. It's all about this life. It's all about the here and now. It's all about me. No thought of heaven's glory. No thought of what is to come. It's all about the here and now. It's all about living now. Whatever pleases me now. Peter says, notice, that person has forgotten his purification from his former sins. That kind of person, that kind of person who professes Christ, that kind of person who actually is a Christian has forgotten. They're ignorant to what the Christian life really is. This is someone who claims to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet they live for the here and now. They live for today. They live for what's right now. It's a sure sign that they don't understand why God saved them or why He saves anybody at all. God didn't save them so that they might have a life here that they never want to leave. That's why God saved us. God didn't save us so that we'd be so comfortable in this life here and now that we never want to go to heaven that we never want to be with Christ. No, He saved us to reflect Him. He saved us to honor and glorify Him. He saved us to be like His Son, to live as Christ here and now, to be godly, to live pure as He is pure. He saved us to glorify Him, to reflect the very character of God in us every day. In fact, here's how the Apostle John explained it. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. You can write that down, look at it later. I'll read it for us. The one who says, this is the claim, this is the profession, the one who says that he's in the light, right? John's speaking about the domain of light, the domain of the kingdom of Christ. The one who says they're a Christian. The one who professes faith in Jesus Christ, that's what he's talking about. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother, lives contrary to the light, contrary to what the light requires by means of these very qualities that Peter's talking about. The one who lives that way, who hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. John gets very specific. John says, listen, if that's the character of your life and you profess to know Jesus, you're actually not in the light at all. You're in the darkness. Yet the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. I'm going to see Peter say that in verse 10. They will, you will never stumble. There's no cause for stumbling in him. You know what he means by that? He doesn't mean that they're not going to have mistakes in the Christian life, that they're so perfect they'll never sin. No, he's saying you're not going to be taken. You understand what salvation means and by means of what that is, how you are to live in your life. When false teaching comes along, when false doctrine enters the way, you're going to be able to recognize it right away because you know what a Christian is. You're not going to stumble. You're not going to fall. There's no cause for stumbling in you, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Blind. Notice verse 9, 2 Peter 1, 9, notice the blindness is twofold. 
not only do they not know what to live for, right? They're living for today. They don't know what to live for, but they don't even know why they are to live differently. Short-sighted, they don't know what it is. And they don't know why. Why? Because they've forgotten the previous sin paid for in Christ. They forgot what Christ did for them. And because of that, you live for the here and now. Rather than strive for holiness, because one day you're going to meet the Lord. That was graphically on display for us just yesterday. When one of our Supreme Court justices met Christ, they went from judge to being judged in an instant. That's the reality. You live for today, you have no idea that one day you will meet the Lord. And so Peter says, fruitfulness, fruitful and usefulness, and purity in your life are both motivations to practice the very exhortations that he gave us in verses 5-7. through seven. But there's a third, there's a third reason that Peter gives us, and it's here in verse 10. Therefore, in light of those two things, or in light of all that I said really from verse 5 on, or really in light of everything I've said to you thus far, therefore, brethren, he's talking to Christians, this is who he's talked to, this is why he said, we who have, I'm writing to those who have received a faith as the same kind of ours in verse 1, I'm writing therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. This is the third one. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. When you practice those things, you are assured by God's design that you know He has called you, He has chosen you, that you're a Christian. This is part of the danger that lies with false teaching. Because false teaching and lies entice people to be unsure of the truth. That's what it does. You should be unsure of the truth. That's what false teaching does. Don't believe it. Begin to doubt what you have believed. It started back in the garden when Satan said, Has God truly said? Doubt what God has said. That's false. False teaching. That's a lie. And in the Christian realm, what does false teaching do? What does false words do? False words shake faith. False words shake faith. In the world at large, untruths, false words, You know what it does? It encourages irrational fear. An irrational fear that leads to all kinds of unnecessary activities and practices. That's what false words do. And so Peter is telling us to practice our faith, exercise it in and through these qualities, because in doing so, you gain a strong assurance of your salvation. You gain a strong 
foundational assurance on the grounds of what you are doing by means of the power of God given to you by God and His righteousness, and that grounds you with fearless courage. This kind of faith is fearless. Fearless. Now, I don't want us to be confused again because Peter is not telling us to make ourselves Christian. That's not what he's doing. When it says, make certain his calling and choosing you, he's not saying make yourself Christian. Or he's not saying make certain that you've made yourself a Christian. That's not what he's saying. No, none of, none of us can do that, in fact. We, we can't make ourselves a Christian, and we, we, we can't become Christian by our own power. We don't have the power to do that. We are dead in sin prior to being saved. That's what the Bible tells us. We are completely unable. In fact, it's impossible without God to do that. And therefore, to say that this means, as some do in even commentaries that you'll pick up, some say that we make ourselves Christian, that we do that. To say that is to declare something that, is, that contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible in all kinds of other places. No one seeks after God. All go astray, as Paul quoted the Old Testament in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. So no, Peter isn't exhorting us to make ourselves Christian. Election and calling are only done by God. And faith is something that we are given by God. That's why Ephesians 2.8 says it the way it does. By faith you are saved, through, or by grace you are saved through faith, and that a gift from God. No dead person can make himself alive. If you've ever seen that happen, please let me know. No dead person has deemed themselves to be alive. If that was true, we wouldn't have a cemetery in the middle of town. There wouldn't be a cemetery on the earth. No one does that. No one can do that. No dead person can make himself alive, and therefore salvation is entirely a gift from God by His grace. So what is Peter saying here then? What's he saying? He's saying that only the true Christian, only the true Christian practices these qualities. Only the true Christian practices these very qualities. They're the only ones equipped to do so. And it is through the practice of them that God uses to assure you of his electing and calling you. God uses the practice of your Christian character as an assurance to you that you are His child. You see, we know that election and calling are from God. We know that. So the question is this. Do I know that I'm called an elect? What does my life look like? What am I doing? How am I living? Are the results in my life, do they reflect this very reality? Remember when we studied 1 John? Some of you probably do. 
the whole purpose of that little book, John says, chapter 5, he says, these things I have written to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. You want to know what First John's about? John wrote it so that you might have assurance. It's been given to us by God through the Apostle John so that we might have assurance. And what does John talk about in that book? He talks about the Christian life. He talks about what a Christian does. This is the reality and action of a Christian life. A Christian life is characterized by these very things. John says, I want you to be sure of your salvation. And here's what a Christian life is to be in practice. You want to have assurance? You want to know that you're a Christian? Then here's the direction of your life. Then be assured of your salvation if that's the direction of your life. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. He's saying, listen, don't listen to others about what the Christian life is to be. Don't listen to the false teaching of the world and other religions about what Christianity is. I mean, that word is thrown around like, like eggs. Now, everybody seems to be a Christian. Everybody wants to claim that. Don't listen to that. Don't get your definition of what a Christian is from the world or those who claim to be a Christian, but don't go on living like the Bible declares a Christian is to live. They just live like the world. Don't let that define what a Christian is. You'll have no assurance if you believe that. You'll have no assurance on that road. Now practice these qualities, Peter says. Practice these qualities and you'll be assured of God's calling and electing you. Peter's not talking about perfection. He's talking again about who Christ is. It's about Christ and who He is. Being Christ-like. And that's your life. You'll be on solid ground. You'll know. Nothing to fear you'll know that your sins have been forgiven in Christ. You don't have anything to fear. You're on solid ground knowing that God sees you through the righteousness of Christ. That God doesn't judge you according to your own foolishness. Not according to your past foolishness, not according to your present foolishness, and certainly not according to what will happen by your foolishness in the future. He sees you in Christ and in Christ alone. When you practice these things, you will know that you're a child of God. You know that you have eternal life. And so assurance ought to motivate you. It ought to motivate you to put all diligence into this. Greater diligence into the practice of these things because they they render me useful and fruitful. They render me not ignorant to the truth of what a Christian actually is, and they give me a solid foundation of assurance in my salvation. And there's one final motivator that Peter gives us here in verse 11, and that is the kingdom to come. The kingdom to come. He says, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This is why we said in our series, this is, I've titled it, A Faith That Finishes Well, because finishing well, Peter says, finish well because at the end of the road is the promised eternal kingdom. At the end of the road, as John Bunyan said, is the celestial city 
We can say it this way. If we want just to have a little phrase that might help us, going the right way on the right path ends in the right place. Going the right way on the right path ends in the right place. In fact, he says, it will be abundantly supplied to you. You know what abundant means? More than you could ever ask or think. More than you could ever dream up. So I trust now, if we hadn't before, I trust that now you can see the utter foolishness for a Christian to go about neglecting these qualities in their life. It's utter foolishness to not go about living these things. How blindly short-sighted is the person who does not put every effort to add to their faith these virtues. They have literally forgotten what is to come. And I might add that one of the greatest ways to test where we are in our own thinking about these motivations, one of the greatest ways to test it is through what we fear. What do we fear? The way in which we face death and anything that might bring it about or that we might think might bring it about says a whole lot about what we are trusting in. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. In what are we trusting? In what are we trusting? Have we forgotten what is to come? Have we forgotten that there's an eternal kingdom awaiting us? Have we forgotten that every breath is given to us by our Heavenly Father above? Every breath? Have we forgotten that our very lives are in His sovereign hand and that our life and our health are actually a result of His grace and nothing of our doing? See, do we understand, do we actually understand from this text that we are no safer from death in a plastic bubble in which nothing can get to us than we are outside of that bubble? We are no safer. Why? Because it is God who controls your breath and not us. It is God who controls everything. I wonder, beloved, I wonder, especially in our current day, especially in the moment in which we are living right now in our country, I wonder if we have convinced ourselves that we individually and as a people are preserved by our doing rather than by God's doing. Test yourself. See, have you forgotten? Have you been convinced by the notions of others rather than by the truth of who God is? So that all of your earthly fears are held in check. Remember, His divine power has granted to us everything 
pertaining to life and godliness. Peter says, how? Through knowing him. Through knowing him. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through knowing him who called us by his own glory and his own excellence. You see, Peter says, grace and peace is multiplied to you in that knowledge. Don't miss that. Grace and peace is multiplied to you in that knowledge. Do you know that peace? Do you know that settledness? Do you know that reality and spiritual courage that stands, even though my flesh is saying, shake about and fear everything around Grace and peace is in that knowledge. Listen, the world would have us fear. But in Christ, there's peace. Christ, there's peace. There's nothing better for the Christian. Nothing better for us, beloved, than to go to our heavenly home. And the Christian, the professor, the professing Christian who refuses to follow the false words of the world and refuses to fear like the world, they do that because they know God. And because they know God, they're striving every day to know him more as they know Christ. And they know where they are going because Christ is with them. He promised, I will never leave you or forsake you, ever. Those who live that way are looking for the unseen. They're not looking to the things of this earth. And so fear is held at bay. Fear is put in its right place. And they finish well. So I echo the words of Peter's exhortation today. If you want to have entrance into the glorious kingdom abundantly supplied to you, then give all your energy to exercise your trust in Christ in these things, in these qualities. Trust Christ. And all these results will be supplied to you. You'll be useful and fruitful. You're not going to be blindly short-sighted about being forgiven of your sins. No one's going to unearth the moorings of your assurance of your salvation by some foolishness. Because you know that your entrance into heaven is coming. And you want to be ready for that, knowing that you're in the hand of God. No fear, no worry, just a solid confidence that the one who saved you is the very one who will keep you. Peter says, these are things we must never forget. These are things we must never forget. We'll get into that next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for equipping us with faith. Thank you for securing us by your own power. And thank you for securing and ensuring 
that we know you by your word. We don't need to be confused. We don't need to be fearful about life because your word tells us exactly who you are and exactly what we are in Christ. So thank you that through walking in these truths, we are made stronger. And it's by your merciful hand that we do not fall. So Lord, we ask that you continue to strengthen us. Lord, help our unbelief. And may we give all diligence to knowing you, practicing these qualities. All for your glory. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.